being here uh, this morning for the opportunity to come and share uh, with you all. I ask that you would uh, keep uh, our church, Strong Tower Washington Park, in your prayers uh, there in West Montgomery. Uh, We have uh, known this church uh, for a long time. It's an encouragement to me, and so it's good to have a chance to come and be an encouragement to you all. So, If you don't mind, let's pray, go before the Lord, and ask him to be with us. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this opportunity. We thank you for uh, this church. We thank you that you've given them seven years of your faithfulness to them. We thank you that even before that, as they began the Bible study, Lord, you had this day in mind. We thank you for how you have used them through the years, and Lord, we pray that you will continue to use them. And Father, we pray, um, as every church should, that we will continue to be lights on a hill. And Father, as I think about the churches in Revelations chapters 2 and 3, Lord, I think of uh, churches that Jesus said uh, they were doing many things well, but yet there were still some things for them to do. And I just pray for our churches today, Lord, that you will open our eyes to those things that we need to offer to you. Um, that we get sidetracked and we get confused about, and we ask that you will preserve us from the schemes of the devil who is always seeking to to, uh, get rid of the light light from the lampstands of churches, God. Lord, may we not uh, be in that number. Lord, we cling to your promises for the village church and all your churches that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Lord. And uh, we just thank you for your faithfulness, and this time we get to share together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I know much of, uh, many of you, uh, like I was this summer, we saw in July there was 12 boys that got trapped in a cave in Thailand. And they were there, ended up being there for about two weeks. Uh, They had been missing for nine days before anyone could even find them. And once they found them, they realized how difficult it was going to be uh, to rescue them. And so they had to bring in uh, special forces and Navy SEALs from many different uh, militaries, many different countries to try uh, to save these boys and their coach. Uh, It was so dangerous that even a man who was a retired uh, Navy SEAL type diver, he died. Uh, trying to get back and forth between the boys. So there was not uh, a, a 100% certainty that they were going to be able to save these kids. Uh, but many military forces put their minds together, and I just remember, uh, well, pretty much it seemed like the whole world paused and took notice of the heroic efforts to save these young men, uh, and everybody celebrated that they were returned to their families. And it got me to thinking about the Lord. And how he pursues us. And how he pursues people. And how much we realize that while being saved physically is important and heroic and worth celebrating. That the souls of men really do hang in the balance. And that God is, has always had a plan to pursue 
those who did not know him. And so this morning, I want to remind us, because as churches, we tend to forget that our mission really is about the souls of men. That God has called us to pursue sinners, pursue people who don't know him. And in case uh, we get confused, we need to remind ourselves this morning that we are all sinners. And that Christ at one time or another has pursued us and continues to pursue us. And so we want to look briefly at this idea of Jesus, Jesus's radical pursuit of sinners and and try to draw from it ways that we can be encouraged in our pursuit of Christ and in our pursuit of others. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but as churches get older, they tend to baptize fewer and fewer people. That church plants have a much higher rate of baptisms per 100 people than churches who have been around for a while. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is, but it seems the longer a church goes along, the uh, as Alex was talking about, maybe the safer we get, the as the resources stabilize and people get comfortable, we tend to uh, waver on the mission. And so if you'll look with me in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 32, I want to give you four different ways, four different uh, realities, four different observations about Jesus' pursuit of sinners. Uh, the first one is found in verses 17 through 20, and it's simply this. Jesus uses the faith of people to save sinners. Jesus uses the faith of people to save sinners. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look here in 17, uh, uh, Luke 5, 17 through 20. This is what it says. One of those days while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of, of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him uh, in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. I'm reading from uh, the CSB translation this morning if you're uh, are trying to catch up with me. Uh, this idea is simply that Jesus is in this crowd. He is teaching. The Pharisees and teachers of the law are now surrounding him. They are curious. They recognize in the book of Luke that Jesus has already shown his authority over demons. He has shown his authority over sicknesses. He has shown his authority in many different ways, but now he claims that he can even save sinners. And in, and in his passage, we see that Jesus has already built up such a reputation that, that these Pharisees and teachers of the law are coming from all over, even Jerusalem, to get a glimpse of the madness that has developed around him by the time you get to Luke chapter 5. And this is very remarkable because this is 
the same Jesus, Joseph's son, the carpenter, uh, the son of a young woman with a husband who at one time didn't even know if he wanted to keep her around. Uh, Jesus is from Nazareth, the place where they said nothing good can come from there. He was an infant on the run from Herod who wanted to assassinate him. But this same Jesus who has gone through all of that has captivated the geographical region around him and everybody wants to know who he is. And the Bible tells us there also that says that the Lord's power to heal was in him. This idea of power comes from a word, a Greek word that is dunamis, from which we get the idea of dynamite from. The Bible basically is telling us that that God's divine power to heal was flowing through the veins of Christ. And some men came at this point all of a sudden carrying their friend on the stretcher. No doubt they had heard who Jesus was and he was able to do. And they tried to bring him in by conventional means and not being able to do that in a moment of desperation. They lowered him down through the roof. Uh, one commentator says they probably each grabbed ropes and dropped him in. And verse 20 says that when Jesus saw this, he says, seeing their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. Jesus response to seeing faith is remarkable. And Luke uh, talks about it all over the place. But here he says, Jesus seeing their faith, meaning that he saw the faith uh, in all of them. He saw the faith. In the man who was paralyzed, who allowed his friends to bring him, he saw faith in those who would consider uh, their friend needing Christ and how they brought him to it. And so he saw that and he looked at the man who was paralyzed and he said to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't want to confuse what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that the sins were forgiven because other people have faith. He had to have faith in Jesus himself. And the Bible tells us that because of this, his sins were forgiven. This idea of forgiven comes in the perfect tense, which means that it happened and it had ramifications from that point on. And this is a miracle that we should all take note of, that this man had a need and he recognized Christ as a problem fixer. And so this morning, it is easy for us to lose sight of the fact that Jesus really does solve problems, that we can bring our troubles and our cares to him. As he told his disciples that in this world, you will have many troubles, but you can take heart because I have overcome the world. There is no problem that we cannot bring to the feet of the cross and ask Jesus for his mercy and their grace. There is no sin that we have that that we can't throw before him, that he is not able to enter into our pain and to solve the issues of life in ways that nothing else simply can. Many people try to medicate themselves and and, and find peace and hopes and all sorts of things, but Christ presents himself through the scriptures as the one we should bring our problems to. I want to take time to just consider these friends who brought, brought, their, brought their paralyzed friend to Christ. What an encouragement to us. 
It is clear that these men recognize what Christ was capable of. And it is clear that these friends love the guy that they brought to Jesus. If we today recognize who Christ is and we recognize that we love people, how what to what length should we go to to bring people to Christ? What of our Bible studies? What of our our homes? What of retreats and and things for the youth? What is going on that we believe that people can meet Christ there? If you guys believe in the village church and you believe that the gospel is preached here and you believe that they can meet the Savior of the world, to what length should we go to to make sure people have the opportunity to meet him? And yet it seems that week after week we can come and we can be fed and we can grow and we can be poured into. Forgetting the neighbor next door or the coworker that we have worked beside for 10 years or friends that we socialize with in other contexts or parents that our children play sports with and we're in these spaces and we're not begging people, pleading with people, imploring people, come and hear about a man who can save sinners. It's also an encouragement here that, that, that we need a reminder as gospel-centered Christians that it's not simply those who don't know Christ who need to be brought to Christ. Sometimes you and I need to be brought to Christ. Sometimes we are hit by life in ways that we feel spiritually paralyzed and not able to move on our own. And what a tragedy it will be if we did not have friends who love us enough to say, we're going to pick you up and bring you to Jesus. We're going to not allow you to be paralyzed by anxiety and fear and doubt and even sometimes uh, 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 shameful, sinful acts. We're not going to let you stay there because the grace and love of God compels us to love you enough that even when you don't want to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can drag one another to cross to the cross and remind us of Christ's saving work in our lives. And this speaks to accountability. This speaks to family. This speaks to how we should care for one another. Yet it seems at times when we see people and our friends in sin, we it's so much easier to talk about them and to converse about their situation with others than it is to get in the mud and the dirt with them and remind them that Christ saved you. That he loves you. And that his grace is sufficient. And so my challenge to us this morning as we consider this first point, let us not forget that the work and the and the faithfulness of God to use you and I to bring people who don't know him to Christ. And let us not also forget the reality that as believers, sometimes we got to remind each other of who Christ is and what he's doing in our lives. And not only does Christ use 
the, the, the work of friends, Jesus also uh, uses this idea of miracles to remind us that he saves sinners. Jesus uses miracles to show that he truly saves sinners. Look with me in verse 21 through 26. It says, then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. But to so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded and they were giving glory to God and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. (laughs) These Pharisees, they did not want to believe that Jesus was God. They had strict beliefs and teachings about the law and who can forgive sins. They accused Jesus of blasphemy. This idea of insults uttered God. And, and these religious leaders often criticize Jesus in his way. One commentary says, because he claims for himself attributes, rights, and prerogatives of God, including the authority to forgive sins. So they continually gave him a hard time. They said, who can forgive sins of God but God? They knew the Old Testament. They knew the Bible. They knew verses like Isaiah 4325 that says, I, I sweep away your transgressions for my, for my sake and remember your sins no more. <clears throat> this and many other passages clearly pointed to the reality that only God could forgive sins. These guys had seen miracles before. They had seen what Moses did as he was leading God's people away from Egypt and Pharaoh. They had seen uh, the prophet Elijah raise someone from the dead in 1 Kings chapter 16. They had seen Elijah go up against all the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18 and call down fire on a sacrifice that he had even had the audacity to pour water on. They had seen the Shunammite raised from the dead by Elisha, the the, the disciple of Elijah in 2 Kings 4. They had seen even Elisha in 2 Kings 13 after he was dead and in the grave. Men came to bury someone else. Robbers came to raid the tombs. and And the guys who were doing the burying accidentally dropped the dead man on Elisha's bones. And they saw this man get up and leave. So miracles, they understood. What they had never seen was a man forgive sins. Jesus places himself by saying this in the crosshairs of these Pharisees and teachers and how he responds now is going to say much about him. At this point, Jesus has backed himself into a corner that he could only be one of three things that C.S. Lewis puts it. Right now, he's got to be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. On his radio show, the BBC, and in his book, Mere Christianity, 
Uh, he is quoted as saying this. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is Christ. They say, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely uh, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things uh, Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call on him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to be obvious to me that he is neither lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus, through the scriptures, makes some crazy claims, things that he says as we are examining him, that he has the authority to forgive sins. He also says that he has always existed when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus also says that he intends to come back and to judge the world. Jesus even had the audacity to say that I am the only way to God. So we cannot say, as my wife says, they need to stop lying. They don't think he's a great prophet. They really think he's a false prophet. Because how can he say I'm the only way? And then people pity pat around with ideas that there must be some other way to heaven. He perceived their thoughts. Jesus replied to them, I know what you're thinking. He says, why are you thinking this? Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Jesus shows that he even knows the thoughts of men. This Understand this, Jesus, these guys are the professionals. These guys are the ones that know the law. They know the Bible backwards and forwards. And watch this, they still miss Jesus. You and I can know doctrine going and coming. We can know what the Bible says backwards and forwards. And yet there will be people in hell who knew the word backwards and forwards and still miss Christ. As I often like to say, sometimes we can be dangerously close to the gospel. You could be so close, you can't even see it. Put your hand in front of your face. The closer you get to your eyes, it's kind of hard to even see your eyes. May God give us fresh eyes to be able to see who he really is. So Jesus says to them, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. And to prove that he really could forgive sins, Jesus told the man to get up and walk. And immediately he got up, he took his bed and went home. 
I believe Jesus is pointing to a reality that a spiritual healing is far greater than an earthly healing. Because an earthly healing, guess what? Your body's still going to deteriorate and you're going to die. As miraculous as it was for God, to Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead, the brother still had to have two funerals. <laughs> but when we are raised spiritually, we are raised to a life that we never have to again taste death. He wanted these teachers to know who he was. He used this miracle to show that he forgives sins. And people, I want to present to you today that Jesus is still performing miracles. There are things that have happened in my life that can only be attributed to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when we see his goodness and his mercy and his grace in miraculous ways, let it remind us that Jesus does have the power and authority to forgive sins. So guess what this means? No one is too far gone to be touched by the master. I don't know about you, but I see people walking up and down the streets in my community, and I say, Jesus, that's a lost cause. That's what I say in my mind. That's what I say in my heart. But I have to be reminded that no one is too far gone to be saved by Christ. I don't care what they are currently doing, what they have done in their past. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the blood of the Lamb is to save them. And you and I can never give up. Pleading with the Father to do great and mighty things. And when we see him do things that, that demand our praise. Let us not just praise him and thank him so that we can uh, 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 bask in the glory that he has come to our rescue. Let us allow that miracle to point us to the reality that Christ wants to save someone. He wants to do a miracle in the hearts of men. The next thing I want you to see is simply this. Uh, Christ illustrates this point that I've just been talking about by healing the tax by calling Levi the tax collector to be one of his disciples. Look with me in Luke uh, 5, 27 through 29. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at the house. Now there was... Uh, uh, a large crowd of tax collectors and others uh, uh, who were guests with him. This is amazing to me because right now Jesus is calling a tax collector into discipleship. Tax collectors have horrible reputations. No one wants to be around them. And yet Jesus says, come and follow me. I would imagine that if it was us, we would have asked Jesus to pick more people like he did at the beginning of chapter 5 when he called Peter and his friends to follow him. In the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus called good, hardworking, middle-class, a blue-collar fisherman to follow him. And now he wants to call this person who is despised and nobody wants to be around, he calls him to be his disciples. This, to me, points to the reality that God is calling people from every background, from every situation, to be his followers. 
which is why a room that looks like this is such an encouragement because Christ is not saving one type of person. Christ is not saving one type of uh, 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 way of viewing the world, except he wants to conform all our viewpoints into a biblical worldview. He's calling some with horrible backgrounds. He's calling some who got saved when they were children, and he is creating one family. And we need to fight for the unity that Christ died for when he pictures and shows us that he is calling people from every background, every tongue, every nation to walk with him. This idea of follow me is an interesting thing. It said he left everything and he began following him. The idea of following is an imperfect, uh, imperfect, uh, active command which simply means that it's a continual following. It's not that you say yes to Jesus and then you live life the way you want to live it. It's each and every day you wake up, you are looking for ways to truly, accurately follow him. Always needing to reevaluate. So what does this idea of following and leaving everything actually look like? It can't... It, it, It could mean that you simply walk away from every possession you have. It could very well mean that. The scene is how Levi has a banquet in his home and a few verses later, I don't think it meant that for him. This idea of following is simply this. Following him and is the idea following in Jesus is simply this, that uh, every day we have a willingness to bend our will to the will of the master and strive for his glory and not our own, no matter what the cost. Every day, a willingness to bend our will to the will of the master and strive for his glory at, and not our own, no matter what the cost. Means we got to reprioritize. You know, in Olympics, they only count first, second, and third place. We don't know what the other 50 of them did. Jesus is telling us that he wants to be first, second, and third. Nothing else can be on the podium. And so whatever he calls us to, he wants us to do it with our whole heart each and every day. Rosaria Butterfield wrote the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Very interesting book. She talks about the idea of Christians making their homes into fortresses to keep the world out of. She says, as New Testament Christians, we need to flip that on his head and our homes and and where we live and how we live should be a, a, a sense of gathering those who don't know Christ and gathering those who do know Christ for encouragement. And we see Levi do just this in verse 29. It says that he hosted a grand banquet and Jesus was the guest of honor. He brought all his friends from all over and he brought them into his home. No doubt this was a bunch of misfits because tax collectors did not have decent friends. That's why the Pharisees were like, man, why is Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors? But Levi recognized that upon becoming a Christian, that it was his duty to abandon all else and to use whatever he had to bring people to Christ. It did not matter how bad his background was. So no matter what your past was, God wants to use you today to bring those who don't know him to Christ. And I leave you with this. 
I love Jesus because he always models what he asks of us. Jesus spends times. Uh, Jesus spends times with the outcast to save sinners. Real quickly, look at verses 30 to 32. It says, but the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why is he eating with the sinners? Jesus replied, it is not the healthy who are in need of a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Guys, Jesus left heaven and all of his glory to dwell with you and I. Do you realize how much of a sacrifice it was for a holy God to come and dwell with sinful men? So that you and I could know him. How is it that you and I could ever get to a point where we don't want to be around sinners and we don't want to make our aim to help turn the light on in people's mind that Christ came for them? May it never be made a fire to see Christ do amazing things in the hearts and lives of men always be on our mind because it was on our Savior's mind. He said, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick. And the reality is today that Christ uses the faith of others. He uses miracles. He uses people that no one thought he should ever use. And he even himself modeled for us what it means for him to come and hang out with the outcast. And my prayer for us is that we would make this our aim and our goal ourselves. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness towards us. And Lord, by the power of your spirit, we just ask that you would do what only you can do. Father, that you would take these few words and use them for your glory and your honor alone. Lord, help us as churches not to forget our great need to pursue the lost. Help us our need, our, help us to not forget our need to do that together as your family and your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you please stand as we close? <laughs> Just like fire. <laughs>